Hey, we are here with John Gertner, author of The Idea Factory, all about Bell Labs and innovation, as well as Jimmy Sony. Jimmy wrote the book about Claude Shannon, someone who is uh, one of the more influential people coming out of Bell Labs. And the first thing I wanted to open with was as a native New Jerseyan, why does New Jersey not get enough credit for being the foundational location of uh, American technological innovation? I think you've got, you know, uh, Edison, you've got Bell Labs. I think, John, you were lamenting some woes with NJ Transit recently. But yeah, what's what's the deal? Why does New Jersey not get credit where credit's due? Good question. I mean, I tried to correct that. Believe me, I, I, I tried. Um, you know, growing up in New Jersey, I mean, my my impression actually as a as a as a kid, um, because I grew up pretty close to the main Murray Hill Laboratory, yeah. uh, which really kind of was the, the the main activity of Bell Labs. Although in later years they built another huge laboratory down closer to the shore, um, was that it was really very much the epicenter of, of science and technology. But um, I, I guess you know Silicon Valley in its in its scope in its um, in, in in this kind of um, uh, world where where software spreads so quickly and so powerfully has kind of supplanted that very quickly. And I think a lot of the work probably that came out of Bell Labs was maybe more fundamental in nature, mm. more kind of uh, the substrate on which all this other um, technology that, that really has taken over the world uh, was built. And, you know, it's a little less obvious. I mean, we don't think about transistors, but we, we do think about Google and Facebook and Twitter, excuse me, and X or whatever. Um, we think about these things very much because they're very much part of our lives. But these sort of more platform e-technologies that came out of Bell Labs uh, or, or maybe even the pharmaceutical companies that that also were, were fundamental to New Jersey um, probably just don't get the credit they deserve. Yeah, it's tough. I grew up... Um closer i grew up in red bank and so we were near the one in uh near the shore so i my yeah. recollection of it it was already sort of in that lucent alcatel phase of things and my my great i knew some folks whose parents worked there and they were some of my first introduction to like they when you'd go over their house they'd show you how to make a website on GeoCities or something like that but it was already kind of fading um from relevance and most of the time we just spent like kind of sneaking onto the grounds and like like hitting golf balls and things like that but i do feel like they're coming back in prominence with uh that show severance bell labs yeah yeah, yeah they, they they've used the old home dell lab for that show apple tv show uh, which i i really like the show too and um i don't know if you've been down there but they repurposed the whole home dell lab which was this beautiful structure from the um early 60s and uh, by Saarinen, who also did like the TWA terminal at JFK and it has this kind of wonderful, you know, ennobling kind of jet age feel to it if you walk into it. And now it's kind of all different companies are working out of it. Um, and it's it's actually pretty vibrant. It surprised me because when I was writing my book, it was literally dormant and and there was nothing in there and it was getting sold and there were weeds coming through the, the, the um, parking lot. And um, I remember a, a guard chased me off and I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm writing a book on this. I just wanted to see this place. And um, I really thought that they were just going to bulldoze it because the land is actually worth a lot of money for development. But um, they've they've turned it into a kind of hub and um, it's it's nice to see. Jimmy, did you do any field research uh, when you were writing about Claude Shannon? Did you go back to his hometown or anything like that? So I actually visited the facility in New Jersey as part of the research and it was funny, uh, John's comments made me smile because he visited when it, you know, he, his book came out before, well before mine and he visited and it was sort of, it was similarly overgrown when I went there. And it was also like, it was almost like, like, uh, it was like a gray overcast day, you know, sort of in the shadow of what was of a once illustrious kind of innovation center, right? But the reason I went is because they had actually preserved Claude Shannon's office exactly how he had laid it out. Uh, when he was there. Now, importantly, Shannon was mostly working in the West Village when Bell Labs was at, I think it was like 463 10th Street. Um, and he, so, and then he moves to New Jersey when the labs moves to New Jersey, but the bulk of his time was spent when, you know, the labs was, was in the West Village. So it was a more happening, it was a more happening venue for some of these things. Um, I was, I was actually, you know, John gave a super thoughtful answer. My answer was going to be, 
no matter what New Jersey does, it may never get the credit deserved for the thing <laughs> it does, right? It's a branding yeah. thing. It's like, uh, you know, I, I think of it as a, as a misfortune, not a, not, not, you know, but, but I will say that, that there's something to, um, I think this was from John's book, uh, that there's something to the idea that you could engineer a place that was removed from, I think it was like the dirt and the noise or something of the city. Right. Um, and, and for Shannon, that definitely, he, you know, I remember some reflections on that though for him that that happens properly at MIT, but I, I like that. That's what I think. I think it's just, you're, you know, it can't get no respect. It's a Rodney Dangerfield problem. <laughs> yeah. I think it's um, thing where you, where you mentioned that uh, there's more consumer consciousness of uh, software companies like Google, but these, these companies are also famously failing to recreate the magic of Bell Labs, uh, particularly with Google brain or whatever it's called now. I think well, that's a few names old, but uh, a very explicit desire to try to create the kind of innovation. And I wonder if it comes down to what you mentioned as primarily the difference being the fundamental nature of the work at Bell Labs, or maybe Google is doing fundamental work in things like large language models. And then um, they're not actually seeing the kind of success that they're, they're hoping for from commercialization of those things, because maybe, I mean, at Bell Labs, how much was it about the commercialization and how much was the, like, the, the really spectacular work, things uh, more on the, the basic research side? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I'm sure Jimmy has some thoughts, too. Um, it's a really good point. I mean... I usually come down on the fact that because Bell Labs was this sort of unique arrangement of kind of, you know, having a monopoly, kind of operating almost as a public trust without this kind of um, um, pressure, I guess we could say, you know, for quarterly profits. I mean, Google has sort of gotten around that by being kind of a quasi monopoly, but not quite. So they have like, you know, fantastically. Um, 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 full coffers to fund research. But I think still, you know, any company that operates in that kind of, you know, public sphere and in, in this kind of market economy still has that kind of pressure to justify the kind of investments they're making in research. And at the end of the day, I think investors want some yield from those kinds of research. Um, I don't think Bell Labs had that issue. I mean, they were making things with the idea that they could you know, phase them into the network that they totally controlled over the course of decades. And, you know, if something didn't pay off, they didn't have that kind of pressure. And I think, you know, if we look at Google, you know, maybe they've, they've struggled a bit. You know, I know Google X had looked at sort of like a 10-year timeline to bring products into market, which gave them more than sort of the three or four years that some of the kind of most ambitious tech companies were looking at for big investments. But um, even before that, you know, with Microsoft, you know, Bill Gates was was a big fan of, of Bell Labs and and created what people jokingly called Bill Labs um, at Microsoft sometimes, but that didn't really, you know, hasn't really panned out either in some ways um, to make these kinds of, um, I guess, great strides in sort of fundamental science or technology, which is not to say that those companies haven't done, you know, you know, amazing things. I, I just think they're they're sort of different in in some kind of very significant way, and that they really do operate within within the markets, within uh, this kind of time pressure to justify these big kind of investments and blue sky investments, or giving the researchers sort of unlimited time to to sort of create new products, is just something that was kind of I think fundamental to Bell Labs's DNA, but is just can't work as well in these other companies, maybe, maybe to some extent with Apple, but they're still looking at products that can be readily commercialized and can really be blockbusters. Yeah. I mean, I think this, I've, I've puzzled over this question so much, right? Like this is one of those, and I'm sure John gets it like at, at every, every other day, because, you know, his book is, I mean, there, there's, there's a kind of envy of what Bell Labs was able to do. I obviously looked very specifically at Shannon, Claude Shannon and the effect that Bell Labs had on him and like what the environment enabled him to do. Um, one of my favorite uh, favorite lines came out of this reflection where this person said um, there was a view at Bell Labs that 
you just had to work on something. And if it wasn't relevant for 20 or 30 years, that was okay because we'll still be around, right? And you would, you would be fired if you said that at a modern tech company. Like, oh, we'll be, yeah, 20, this will be relevant in 2053, but we'll be fine, right? I think the exigencies of the market are just a little bit more intense. So that's, that's one reason why I think it's hard to sort of find a formula that would recreate a Bell Labs in Silicon Valley. I think the other thing is, and I, I came to this only in understanding Shannon, Labs was this curious mix, in Shannon's day, it was this curious mix of like dire, very urgent needs, the war effort, mixed with like a totally freewheeling culture of just recruiting really smart people and giving them a lot of breathing room, right? So you had like a life and death urgency on one side. The first project that Shannon is uh, engaged in for Bell Labs is on fire control, which is how you shoot down projectiles from the sky, right? Uh, which actually like the, the success or failure there is count is has a body count. And then at the same time, he jokingly multiple in multiple interviews says, oh, the best part about Bell Labs was that nobody ever told me what to work on. Right. Um, and so there was this odd kind of I, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, cognitive dissonance isn't quite it, but he has simultaneously a lot of pressure to produce things that are relevant for Bell Labs as military contracts. And at the same time, can spend all of this time, you know, publishing papers in the technical journal that Bell Labs creates itself purely for the benefit of fellow researchers and academics. And so, you know, there's the, that that's really hard. I think startups are really good. Contemporary startups are really good at creating the urgency, right? The, the possibility of running out of runway and you're, you go belly up, right? You sort of can't raise new funding rounds, especially in 2023 relative to, let's say, 2020. But I, I don't know that you can ever recapture that kind of freedom because no startup is a federally backed monopoly that believes it's going to exist in 30 years. And mm -hmm. in fact, the most senior managers and CEOs of these companies famously try to avoid that, right? They, they talk about, for Elon Musk, the phrase is maniacal urgency. For Jeff Bezos, it was, I think, like day one, like every day is day one, right? But Bell Labs actively did not not use that language. I mean, they were decade three, you know, it was very different. Um, the other the other thing that I found interesting when I was looking at Shannon is that the one thing that I, I thought was interesting for him in particular was that the Bell Systems Technical Journal was this very, you know, unique thing. It was an academic journal that was underwritten by a private sector company. And and what I think it did, and I and John may be able to speak to this uh, more more clearly, but for for Shannon, what I noted is it created enough like academic envy. Like it created sort of false prestige, right? You, you knew you could write something and have it be published and that it would be widely read and distributed, but your, your tenure wasn't connected or like your pay wasn't connected to your publishing in that journal, right? And so he, he publishes information theory as, as a two-part thing in the Bell Systems Technical Journal. And, and I always thought that was interesting. Like it's, it's in this sweet spot of, you know, your colleagues are going to kind of be green with envy and like you're kind of jockeying for scientific status and position, but it's also a serious substantive document. It is not, it's not like a newsletter or a substack. Like it's, you know, it, it has real reach and, and academic reach. So I always thought that was one interesting feature of the labs where it, it managed to hit this very specific sweet spot where the PhDs could continue to compete against themselves to push each other while at the same time having the freedom to unicycle down the hallways and play long chess games as need be. One of the things I thought was so amazing was that uh, when folks signed on, they licensed away their patents, their future patents that they hadn't done for like a single dollar or something like that. And then, you know, I don't think anyone would do that now. Maybe they do. But you have midway through Shockley breaks away and goes off to start a startup. And I'm just wondering, like, culturally, maybe that wasn't there in the early days where people thought to break off and commercialize. I feel like much more now you're starting to see, even at Google Brain, all the people who worked on the transformer AI model have now all left Google. And is that mm -hmm. sort of striking it off on your own? Maybe it's just more of a, uh, a thing that people are aware of doing, whereas it seems like back in the day, folks were just kind of happy to be involved in, and that wasn't part of the culture yet. And I wonder uh, if that was just of its times that people would be willing to do that versus really trying to carve their own uh, entrepreneurial path. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think with Shockley, it was a radical thing to do. You know, it was, um, you know, there were there were people like Hewlett and Packard who were really probably, I think, the path breakers in terms of sort of saying, yeah, let's just be entrepreneurs and come up with like uh, laboratory equipment, mm. and then it turned into this 
very much larger thing but um you know shockley i remember going through the archives and he's he's miserable at bell labs and you know he's not getting promoted he's you know this esteemed inventor of the transistor co-inventor um brilliant guy cannot manage team and he's writing these these memos to his bosses on pink pieces of paper which they call pinks um complaining you know these are these informal kind of memos that aren't really meant to be distributed and finally you know uh, the boss uh, Mervyn Kelly tries to set him up and say you know if you're gonna go strike out on your own I'll, I'll help you maybe meet some people to fund it but um you know, I don't really think entrepreneurialism was in almost anybody's mind over there. I mean, it was very rare and it might have been, and this is a bit of speculation. I think you have to remember a lot of these people came out of a depression era mentality. There were no jobs when they joined Bell Labs. I mean, there were no jobs in universities, really. They were, everybody was cutting back and the phone company was one of the few employers for PhDs. And at, at that point when um, this sort of, you know, kind of great, manager of Bell Labs, Mervyn Kelly, was hiring a lot of the people, including Shannon and Shockley and and um, Bardeen and, and others who, who went on to great fame. Um, you know, he really did have his pick of, of some of the most brilliant people because there were just so few companies yeah. that could pay. Um, so there may be something to that, that the idea of striking out on your own was, was a risk that people didn't want to take. And there really wasn't much of a roadmap in terms of how do you start a company? And the idea, I think I mentioned this in my book of, you know, let's make a million dollars, you know, it was like huge, you know, and nobody was thinking beyond that. It was really, um, can I, can I, can, can this be done? And there, there really wasn't a, a lot of people willing to do that. I would, I would add, I'd go even further with, with Shannon. The, the choice is pretty binary. You're either going to go to a, a research university or you're going to go be, stay in university life academic life or you're going to go to bell labs like there really there really aren't many other places for him he would have been a very poor fit in any kind of corporate environment it just wouldn't you know his life the way he worked wouldn't have worked um he didn't necessarily think that at the time the universities were the right place for him he had been at princeton at the institute for advanced study he had been at mit he had been at the university of michigan and bell labs had opportunity and it had government contracts for the war effort. So it was hiring PhDs left and right. He he comes into a, a, a unique group within Bell Labs, even within Bell Labs, which is a unique group within the phone company. He's in Thornton Fry's mathematical group. So it's kind of this consulting group where they just like throw mathematicians at different problems, right? Um, but Thornton Fry himself admits, he says, you know, our, our mathematicians are, are, are these sort of strange people. Like they they want to solve real problems, but if they're in a university, they might not be able to do that. So the phones, the phone system is as good a place as any where they're going to find real problems to solve. Um, I, it never, Shannon not only would have been a totally poor fit at a startup, he just never, it never would have, as Jonathan, never would have crossed his mind to go try to raise venture capital and then commercialize information theory, right? So in a way, if you're given the choice of, you can go to a university, do research, and be a traditional academic, which is a choice many mathematics and engineering PhDs made at the time. Or you can go to Bell Labs, which is somewhere in the middle. You're, you're working on more applied mathematics, right, or, or applied engineering. For people like Shannon, who grew up tinkering, it was a natural choice, especially for Shannon when the war starts and you have to do something related to the war. And he's not, he doesn't want to go serve overseas in combat. He feels like this is the best thing that he could do for the country. And then a number of his mentor academics make sure that he's funneled into that position. Um, I don't. I think it, it was a stark choice between academia and Bell Labs for a lot of folks. And I, I don't know that that choice exists today. If you are a math PhD today, my sense is that, you know, you're you're reading Hacker News and Reddit by the time you start your PhD. And you're you're thinking about how you are going to find your way to starting a company or or being a ta or being a technical co-founder of a company, mm -hmm. right? It's a very we have a vernacular for that that Shannon and his generation just didn't. And so mm -hmm. his choice was was almost simpler than the choice facing a lot of PhDs today. And Jimmy, Shannon was not particularly interested in money, was he? No, he wasn't. He, he made a fair amount of it only because he was on the ground floor of a bunch of start startups that friends had started. And he just kind of served on the board and let his equity sticker. He just, stick, he just stayed invested forever. 
Um, mm -hmm. But money was not an overriding concern. He and his wife became interested in the stock market much later in life, but mostly for the mathematical puzzles it offered. It wasn't any real, it, was, it wasn't avarice. It wasn't, oh, we want to, you know, go from X million to X times a certain multiple. It was more that they were just interested in the idea that you could apply math to stocks. And, and it was a puzzle. It was a puzzle like chess or robotics or, you know, early computing. Yep. It's interesting because I feel like our generation of software engineers and like people maybe who started on a more technical track, dropped out of their PhDs, whatever, and started working in software are also not interested in money, but they're very interested in financial independence mm. and are de facto interested in money. But what they want to do is retire at 35 or something and tinker in the way that Claude Shannon managed to tinker the whole time. Like this is just, this is Yeah, just it's like time to unicycle writing is like the yeah. objective. Or maybe well, they can get software and but tinker with software in like commercially viable kind of software projects. That's just like the, and you, the you think Bell, Lab, Bell Labs was kind of I mean if you're using the phrase you know financial independence, it's sort of it hit FI like you know it had decades of financial independence because it was a monopoly and and it and I I can't think of anything comparable. The, you know the other thought I always have is that it's not as though information theory had any kind of ROI for Bell Labs. Right. These were this was a paper and it 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 was it was, sub, you know, as John's words, it was substrate. It produced it led to a number of other developments, but it wasn't as though every time it was cited in another academic paper, Bell Labs received a royalty. Right. So it is this really unique thing to have. What I wonder about is how they managed to do. And this is a question for John, really, is how do you how did they maintain rigor and and a kind of enterprising creativity, not, not commercially minded, but a, a creativity around scientific and technological investment while, while still not necessarily needing that to be attached to any kind of revenue generation. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not even sure that I've ever answered it. I mean, my, my own feeling is that there were, there were kind of um, hints, pushes, pulls, management, a very light touch, Hey, why don't you look into this? Or we we really have this issue. I mean, remember, Bell Labs is connected to a larger company that's beset by sort of problems of planning, and they're thinking they're trying, like the Soviet Union, to come up with ten-year plans or whatever it might be. And they're thinking because they are responsible for this kind of system or network of communication that if they don't do it, nobody's going to do it, and they have to do it, and they have to solve the problems, and they have to plan for increased traffic, better fidelity, all these sort of other issues that um, require, in some cases, just better engineering, and in some cases, some kind of, you know, significant new innovation. And I think that would often filter down from top management to that sort of mid-management level that was dealing day-to-day -day with their departments and scientists, and sort of, it, it came their way through hints, through subtle directives, through, hey, we could really use something like this. Um, but I think it was fairly light touch. And again, we're talking now about the research department and not the development department, which was already sort of working day to day on these problems. And it it also, I think, um, is very true that that there was a fair amount of kind of back and forth, um, both formalized and informal kind of conversations between developers and researchers, sometimes just over lunch and sometimes in meetings of trying to sort of understand what the Bell Systems problems were, what the sort of um, innovative innovation kind of um, goals would be going forward. And I think in that sort of very amorphous way came out of, came some of these sort of more important ideas that they should be working on certain kinds of transistors, that they should be working on certain kinds of switches, certain kinds of metallurgical problems, those sort of things came out of that sort of very kind of informalized management structure. Well, I, I, one thing that I wrote down, which was so hilarious, I feel like the Bell Labs management team also wanted to figure out what this magical situation was and what was causing it. And there was some line, John, I think in your book, the folks who had the most patents at Bell Labs all happened to have lunch with Harry Nyquist, who was just some yeah. random Bell Labser. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, they couldn't, they didn't quite figure it out. I mean, I, I, I you know, and, and believe me, I, I mean, over the years, I've been invited to a lot of companies and a lot of labs. And, you know, everybody's like looking, what is that? What was that magic sauce? And, 
And I think the answer is that it was a lot of things. I mean, you get a lot of really smart people together. You get them working for this one place that, as Jimmy pointed out, is neither academic nor a company. It's somewhere in between. It's not something that existed before, and it's not something that has existed since. But where these researchers weren't really in an ivory tower because what they were working on could have real implications for the company that they were attached to. And, you know, I, I, I sometimes, you know, think about this one guy, Maury Tannenbaum, who um, didn't invent the first transistor, which was germanium. He created the first silicon transistor. And he lives actually in New Jersey. And, and I interviewed him. He's a, he's a brilliant, elegant man. And he said, you know, come upstairs to my office. And he showed me the notebook um, where he was making kind of his, his records of the night he kind of got the first silicon transistor to work. And um, it was a certain kind of way that he built it where he wrote in his journal, this should be very easy to manufacture. And he underlined it three times. And, and that was really the key thing. You know, he understood when he made this that not only had he created a new kind of transistor and silicon had all sorts of, you know, very you know, positive properties beyond germanium because of its, its um, resiliency and, and, and temperature aspects, but that he understood it would be easy to make and easy to put into electronics. And that to him, it was useful. It could revolutionize things. And and I think even though he was in the research department in that kind of ivory tower-ish area of Bell Labs, that to him was a thrill because you could actually have a radical idea and it could be part of this company that controlled the communications infrastructure. And I think that was a very real thing. You know, they were solving problems uh, at a powerful company that had really a, a national and global reach. And um, it was an incredible incentive to innovate. Well, I think one thing probably that seems to be tangible that advice you could offer is that in a lot of these cases, the ARPANET with Bob Taylor, Bell Labs with Mervyn Kelly, there is like despite all these other perfect circumstances, problem-rich environments, you know, no other places, there's a manager who kind of gets it. And maybe they don't, maybe they don't articulate it perfectly, but they have they have the steady hand to guide this ship. And I think from a book perspective, it's really fun because there's this interesting character to drive the narrative. But I, I do feel like at a lot of these places that have done these amazing things, there is a singular person who, uh, if they're not doing the inventions themselves, maybe Steve Jobs with other people at Apple, they're guiding them in this sort of direction that allows for this greatness. Yeah, I think so. And and probably, you know, um, with Claude Shannon, he was sort of outside of that in some ways, I think, which is interesting because they did have room for these other people who whose work became hugely influential. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe we could, I'm sure there are folks at Google working on quantum computing who are outside of the day to day thing. And maybe in 10 years, their work will become incredibly vital. I don't know. But but I think. Um, that's right. I think there were managers who could see the big picture and the researchers didn't have to worry about it, but they did receive the kind of gentle guidance that would push them towards some kind of um, idea or, or product that was actually very useful for the company. I, I would say the other, the other thing that I saw in Shannon's remarks and reflections is that, it, that the management layer, the ma managers were technical before they were managers. That, that was vitally important. Um, Shannon had people, colleagues he looked up to when he had lunch with colleagues. These were not, you know, folks coming out of, um, not to be dismissive, but they weren't sort of business people. They were they were PhDs in their own right. And I, I do think that that has some, I mean, I'm sure that's also true within within technology companies, right? That, that, a, that a CTO who is not technical will have a harder time, you know, uh, earning the kind of trust that you need to to drive breakthroughs, right? No matter how hands-off or hands-on they might be, it's just going to be a language that they don't necessarily have, a distance from them and the people they manage. In Shannon's case, he's recruited by, you know, Thornton Fry, who has like three PhD or like a, a three-part degree or something in like, like astro astronomy, physics, and math. Um, you know, he's interfacing with people who all earned their PhDs before he did, Right. There's not I don't remember him actually having too much interaction with anybody who was on like the commercial, like had any kind of pure commerce background. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that has, that that is important. The, the other like interesting thing is the place tolerated people like Shannon, but I'm not sure Shannon, 
you know, there's a reason Shannon isn't the sort of that gets a that's a brief mention in John, an important mention, but a brief mention in John's book because Shannon is a little bit at the periphery of even a place like Bell Labs. Even in a place like Bell Labs, he knows he's taking the freedom for granted. Um, in fact, it's it's interesting after so information theory comes out. It's a big hit. Everyone's reading it, talking about it. He's sort of suddenly thrust into the role of a celebrity scientist. And after, as he's being recruited by MIT in his letter to the, to the management at Bell Labs, he says, one of the things that I started to realize is that I was taking the freedom I was given for granted. But it, at MIT, that freedom is sort of part of the place, right? It's a, a sort of an expectation. I'm coming on as a tenured faculty member. So there is something about Shannon that I think we need to, if we're, if we're talking about Bell Labs, Shannon is even within Bell Labs kind of a, an outlier. Mm. Yeah. And and just to follow really quickly on what Jimmy was saying, I mean, there there was, you know, we're talking about a, a, a lab with thousands of people in development as well as research. And there was a spectrum of 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 um of talent, of intelligence, and of 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 work habits, I think. And good manager there were people like Shannon who could function on their own. There were other people who needed more guidance. And I think, you know, there was a good level of management that understood that some people really did need more direction than others. And uh they were responsive to that, I think. Uh, have you guys anyway, one, seen? Sorry, go ahead, Jimmy. Oh, one thing I wanted to explore was, and it only came to me in, in sort of thinking about and preparing for our discussion is I, I wonder to what extent, to what extent is it that that Bell Labs operated in both the world of bits and the world of atoms, that they were producing physical things and they were producing ideas, right? So one of the things that always impressed me about Bell Labs is is it is the place that you know, invents the laser and the transistor. It's also where Unix is born. It's where C is born, right? And and I wonder if there's not something to the idea that working in the world that's at the that the intersection of bits and atoms is actually uh, part of the recipe. And so then you you could argue that a place like SpaceX or a place like Tesla is probably maybe in twenty or thirty years more primed to have offshoot innovations right of the kind that you see at Bell Labs that no, I'm not saying necessarily those two companies there are others that are operating at that intersection but I wonder how much that intersection matters for this discussion hmm. yeah one question I had for for you guys was how much is that even the same organization like we again a lot of software engineers uh maybe even learn about Bell Labs through the context of the history of C and Unix and to, to what extent is that the Bell Labs that uh kind of invented the the transistor or the like wartime uh, bell labs that you that you talk about like is it is it something that there's like a cultural connection is there a, a way of management that continued through is it just that it's still very well funded the monopoly is not quite over yet like you can just eke out an, a, a unix just before it it all uh it, it comes to a head what uh to what extent do you see that as the same organization yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, coming out of the war, I, I mean, if I had to sort of put brackets around the golden age of Bell Labs, it would probably be 1947 or something, or 1946, right after World War II, um, to, I guess, I don't know, mid early 70s or something like that. But that's a lot of years. And that's a there's a lot of turnover in that period of time. People like Claude Shannon came and went. Other people kind of went off to academia. Some of those stars like Harry Nyquist, who actually was a brilliant engineer um, and, and inspired lots of other people, had retired and maybe even passed on by that point. Um, so I think, you know, like any company that exists over a long time or any firm, you know, there was a, a certain quiet evolution in the culture. Um, there was, you know, one of the, the, the engineers who actually worked on the first um, cell phone network had said, you know, I, I never saw any of those people that were so, you know, the, the 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 legends of Bell Labs. It was just a myth to me. I was just this guy, you know, he was working in the home Dell lab on on these very early cellular networks. Um, so, you know, I, I think you know, you were you were working for a legendary company when you were joining in the 1970s. I mean, certainly the managers were were smart enough and to to understand that if you know they had to do computer work and fund the computer guys who are working on these new network ideas. But, um, um, you know, they they also made mistakes. I mean, they weren't smart enough to get in on the ARPANET and do that kind of thing. I mean, Bell Labs certainly missed that. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure I have the answer to that. Like, was it the same company? I don't I don't think, 
you know, you're you're ever kind of joining the, the same company if you come in a few years later. It's always going to be a little bit different. Um, and you know, to Jimmy's point, um, that kind of hardware, software, you know, atoms and 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 you know, um, um, electrons or, or bits um, is, you know, I, I guess Bell Labs was was big enough that you know the two sides didn't necessarily meet. I I, I never got the sense that there was a kind of coherent sort of big picture vision for how that was unfolding. And it may have been just that, you know, when you're in the midst of that kind of, or those early days of that revolution, you just can't see where it's going. I'm not really sure. Maybe maybe it's analogous to AI right now, um, or maybe not, but there was a kind of sense that, yes, we should hire these brilliant computer engineers, but I don't think there was any kind of clear idea of what the payoff would be, either for the company or for the the world. I wanted to ask, uh, have you all seen the Beatles documentary, Get Back? Yeah, I did. Okay, so this is uh, this is like a 12-hour video that was released by Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings fame. Um, yeah. But it's looking at them in the studio writing Get Back, which is near the end of their eight, nine-year lifespan. And I, thinking about the glory days of Bell Labs, you know, wouldn't it be great to be a fly on the wall in 1947-48? I think this movie gives us the best picture of looking at real innovation. And you're they're in the studio, and you're just, it's like mundane. It's like, these are the Beatles. Shouldn't they just constantly be spewing out hits and everything? And they're pissed off at each other. They're jealous of each other. They're joking. So there's Claude Shannon. And then there's these moments where, you know, Paul McCartney's just sitting down and he's just kind of like, no one else is there. Everyone's pissed off at everyone. And he's just jamming. And then he starts, you see him write, get back. And he's like mm -hmm. humming it. And, and it's like, the, I, you're now six hours into the movie. It's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. But would he been, have been able to do that if not for all these other things? And uh, for me, rereading the Bell Labs books, it was like that movie gave me that feeling of what it must have been like. You know, not every moment was discovering the transistor. There's all this just sitting down, writing in your notebooks, doing the work. And I thought that that, um, that movie really gave me a sense for what it's like to see innovation happening and, you know, how hard it is, but how there are these also moments of like magical greatness that comes through. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I, I, I think that, um you know, I, I, you guys probably saw the movie Oppenheimer and um I don't think Bell Labs was like that. It wasn't like Los Alamos, you know, where you had like thousands of people directed on a singular problem working night and day to, to solve it, you know, and and, um you know, certainly with the transistor, you know, these were these were company men, you know, they would show up at 830 and they would go home at 530 and they would take their work with them in their in their minds and they would think about it over the weekend. But it wasn't, um, you know, innovation kind of happened. They were working right along at the right time and had the right people. You know, it wasn't quite like building an atomic bomb. I, I wanted to add on onto that, that people often forget that Shannon's information theory, which Bell, you know, sort of got the halo was, was a, was a project he was working on on the side, right? It grew out of some cryptographic work that he had done um, at Bell Labs, but he was principally working on it on nights and weekends. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it was, he was fr he was frustrated by his day job at Bell Labs, uh, and here's the reason. And this actually is pretty interesting. The math that Shannon and many members of the this mathematical research group were assigned to do on behalf of the war effort was not particularly technically challenging. It was actually kind of boring. I remember reading these sort of reflections, like frustrated mathematical reflections, like how easy this is and how come these people can't do it by themselves? And like, why are we consulting on these stupid problems, right? Um, they would refer to them as toy problems. Like these are just toy problems, like it's so easy. Um, so Shannon is not enjoying the fire control work. He's doing it, he's employed, but he's not enjoying it. And there's a 10 year period where he's kind of noodling on the ideas that become the basis for information theory. And then he has a venue, Bell, the Bell Systems Technical Journal, and colleagues who can help him kind of like run ideas. But it's not actually a Bell Labs project at all, right? And so there's sort of the thing that makes Claude Shannon famous and cements like his association with Bell Labs really had nothing to do with 
with Bell Labs. Like it, you know, there were ideas there and he was working on switches and he was in the thick of telephony and all the rest, but he was really working on it on the side. Um, and so it could be that there is someone, you know, at a Google or at a meta that has basically been tinkering on something on the side, right? But my sense is that if whatever they're tinkering on today is is probably a start a startup that they are gonna go raise venture capital for, as opposed to you know a mathematical theory of communication published in two parts. Yeah, there's a, a subset of our audience that's definitely they've been they've been listening to this at three x. And they're just waiting for the nugget of wisdom that they can apply directly to their careers. It's like, when are they going to tell me how to reorient my career so that I can do great work? It's like, I've read the Hamming essay three times. I still don't, I want them to just spell it out for me. So I, I, want, <laughs> I wonder if you can answer the question for them, guys, of like, uh, what is the lesson to take from this obviously adapted to a situation where maybe i mean jimmy I, what i what i think you're saying is that you can't look to an organization anymore like bell labs was an obvious choice in a way where there's no longer an obvious choice for someone who wants to do great work and uh, they they need to think about the work that they're doing more as their, their own work on the side funded somehow now uh in a way or with a with a sinecure or something uh, so that they can do that that on the side but uh, uh, to... well i i actually so I'll, in the spirit of trying to be useful and give the audience something that they can learn right um so like if i were really sort of trying to do the the like like what are the the lessons that one could apply to one's own career from bell labs and looking at it through my prism which was shannon I, I, there are, I think, concrete lessons, you know, that, that aren't about the institution, but that are about how you interact with any institution. One would be, um, you know, for everything we've said, Bell Labs had first rate people. I mean, it had really just crazily intelligent genius people around. I mean, you don't win nine Nobel Prizes, like, by accident. Um, so having colleagues where Shannon looked up to the people that he worked with at Bell Labs, not everybody, but enough people that he had people that he was aspiring to be like, right? So, in, in one sense, it's sort of the, the lesson of don't be the smartest person in the organization. It means probably in the wrong organization. Go find some place where you're you're awed by the people that you interview with. And by the way, I know that this is true in it for, for based on the research I did for the PayPal book. You know, I interviewed somebody who at this point, I think he's like like very high up in meta. I mean, he reports directly to the to the boss, right? To Mark. And one of the things that he said is when he was interviewing at PayPal was the lowest offer that financially that he got out of any of the offers that he had. This was sort of, you know, like when he, when he as an engineer could command premium rates for being a computer engineer. And he said, he's like, I just, but I, the six, seven people I interviewed with just blew, like blew me away with their talent. I wanted to go work for a place where I was constantly going to be behind the curve in some way. That's kind of one lesson. The other would be, um, <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound a little odd, but, you know, if you think of Bell Labs as like an amply funded startup, that was less subject to the ups and downs of the market. There is something to that in the stability that it creates for the management and for the entire institution to allow you to even have the freedom to do side hustles, right? Um, when I And I contrast this again with PayPal, there was no real time for side hustles for most of the people that were, I mean, seven days a week, breakneck, they're just trying to keep the place alive, right? They felt like the house was on fire. I never got the impression from Shannon's reflections about Bell Labs that he felt like the Bell Labs house. Was, it was the opposite where they're going to be around for 30 years. Right. So if you are looking to continue to cultivate something that you have on the side, you know, you, you may not want to join the, the 10 person just closed their series a and is like struggling for survival startup, because you're probably going to be spending more time trying to keep the place alive than you will trying to keep these incipient ideas you might have alive. Right. The third is, um, Shannon's colleagues admired the work that he did on information theory hugely. And everybody from the board to kind of the Bell Labs kind of press office, they, they knew what value, how much value there was in this, even though it wasn't directly valuable to the bottom line of the telephone company. And so being in a place that values whatever the thing is that you, you know, want to do or want to make your name for, you know, that, that, that getting that value alignment is actually really critically important. Um, you know, if Shannon, for example, had been in Procter & Gamble, nobody would have given a damn about information there. They're like, 
what do you get back to our work here? Right? We've got widgets, you know, you've got, we, we've got things to the units to move. Like that's, this is, this information theory. You know, we don't care about lossless compression, like, come on. Uh, but at the labs, you know, that there was real value placed on that intellectual property. And so I, I think that that's another, that's another lesson. I would say the other, the other piece of it is, um, that there is value in thinking about even the most boring work that you would do in an organization as somehow contributing to your other thing, if you have another thing, right? So fire control research and cryptography were foundational for Shannon in eventually, right? Like, you know, one interpretation of the information theory paper is that it's actually a graduated version of a paper he wrote on cryptography. So two years before he publishes the information theory paper, he publishes something around cryptography. And that's all based on trying to secure the phone line for FDR and Churchill. Right. I mean, that's like that's that's integral to that work. It's Sig Sally and the vocoder and all these sort of famous innovations. And Shannon is not a big player in those projects. He's a tiny piece of it, but they form the basis for him to go and do these other things. And I think there might be, you know, I'm stretching it here, but you asked me to stretch it. But it's like an inspiring message about even the work you do that seems unglamorous can set the stage for work that is very glamorous later. Right. I don't know. You asked me to reach. <laughs> Oz, Oz, you always talk about this, though. The folks who are encountering a bug in their day-to-day -day work, and some people just bash it, move on, and then other people lift up the layer of the onion. And that's where that's where the fun can happen, and that's where the real learning can happen. I feel like I've heard that so many times from you, Oz. Yeah, I, I also wonder about that in terms of individual variation within these organizations. Obviously, we have Hamming's view of it as well, uh, why some people were, were much more successful than others. But mm -hmm. uh, to what extent is there like an an individual draw towards a problem or a, a an approach to a problem, which, you know, over the course of years, as Jimmy is suggesting, may lead to something unexpected uh that's uh that's much more substantial with, with software engineers there are some people who are just trying to get the work done and move on and other people who fixate on something and pull the thread and it may take some time but that that allows them to build up a, a skill and an insight that leads to something much more substantial so i wonder as well to what extent are, are these organizations just uh one of one of the many factors in providing environment for those who have an inclination uh, or who have trained themselves towards approaching problems differently to succeed in a way that they might also be able to do that that somewhere else. That's a kind of question around individual uh, variation. Yeah. I wonder if you have a perspective on. You know, one way to answer that question, John, did you did you have any view on what happened when certain individuals left? the labs to go somewhere else like what happened in their their specific not the institution but their careers post leaving yeah i mean the most common thing was that they would they would move to academia at bell labs at least for the research department and like some some of the developers um or people in development would move to some fledgling companies like philco and you know these early like kind of transistor and electronic companies but that was much rarer and um, you know, I, you know, again, I I still think it was a sort of it was it was a certain moment in time when 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 the the idea of what you could do um, with you know your 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 physics degree or with your chemistry degree was was much more limited than it is today, and the idea of of, of being a software engineer was really not developed at all in in any sort of sense, um, but. You know, I, I do think, you know, there, there is a lot to sort of knowing yourself and knowing what you want to get out of an organization when knowing what your capabilities are and what are, what your aspirations are. I mean, certainly, you know, Shannon, as Jimmy pointed out, could never be happy at a consumer company. I wonder, you know, if, if some, if, if it were, he were born at a different moment, what would he do at a company like Apple or something like that? That is sort of a, a kind of consumer company, but, but also sort of with, with a foot, not, not quite Procter and Gamble. Um, and it's an interesting question. I, I don't, we'll never know. I mean, there are, there are probably Shannons around here somewhere whose intelligence is not being tapped the way it should, who don't have the kind of freedom to work. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, you know, as, as they say, like, you know, there's the best movie scripts have never been made. And I think, um, there's probably something to that with technology too. I feel like uh, Shannon would be an interesting one in this renewed era of AI as well. Obviously with his 
like late post-information yeah. theory experimentation with with uh theseus and all these other things um jimmy did you have a do you have a view on uh how what question shannon might ask chat gpt or where he would uh where he would stand in all of this right now i mean um, there are some technological developments where it's tough to answer on this one. He would be my, my I can say with some confidence, I think he would be unbelievably excited. The, these were the questions that occupied him for 50 years, right? He's at the conference at Dartmouth in 1956, where they come up with the term artificial intelligence. You know, he designs Theseus, this robotic mouse, which Bell Labs puts on the road and sends Shannon on the road <laughs> and makes commercials and puts him on TV. Um, where this mouse, for, for folks who don't know, the, the mouse was essentially it was sort of a, a prop, but the mouse could solve a maze, and it was solving the maze using a series of switches underneath the maze. Um, but it was Shannon and his wife who just assemble it on the side. They, they basically used some Bell Labs property, like the switches, to, to develop this thing. And then when he demonstrates it for his colleagues, they're blown away. But for him, the idea that he was talking about with everybody from his Bell Labs colleagues to Alan Turing was, you know, what if a computer could rival a brain? And like, what would that look like? Um, you know, he's doing this with chess playing computers. So my sense is that, you know, he would be unbelievably excited um, that like, if, if no, for nothing else, the Anthropic named Claude, it's sort of primary, one of its primary interfaces after him, I believe. Um, but I, he, there's, no, there's no doubt in my mind that he would be excited about it. Um, I'm not sure that he was thinking big kind of he he was never really given over to like big moral conundrums about technological development. I never really saw that in any of the writing or the it was really just about kind of tinkering, problem solving, designing, developing, creating robots. Um, there there wasn't I don't know that he would sort of have a strong view on the pluses and minuses of different developments within AI. But there is zero doubt in my mind. I mean, I, we saw the papers. This was a big part of his thinking. And for him, it was automata. Uh, like automata. How do our automata going to be thinking machine become thinking machines? And I think he'd be very excited by by all the developments. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, I, I I mean, really, when you look at his work, uh, I mean, just in terms of, of of language and prediction of what words come next and what words um, are probabilistically going to not be used. And, you know, it's very, you know, very much, I just did a long piece on AI for the times and, and it's, you know, you still get in conversations with people who work on this on, on, on Shannon's papers, because they, they really see him in many ways as the kind of pro progenitor of, you know, probabilistic language, you know, choice or word choice. And that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he would both be flattered and awed. So, was that a wider? Was that happening more widely at Bell Labs too? Post his departure, I don't know if it was. I mean, I didn't. I I, I kind of felt like you know, he, um, not felt. Oh, no, I, I, actually, not, I mean, not the probabilistic piece. More like where there was there thinking around AI or, or you know what sort of the predecessors to AI. Not that I was aware of. No, no, no. I'm trying to recap now. Uh, what y'all's advice is for having a meaningful life or at least meaningful work. And I've taken away a problem rich environment with uh, a, some element of competitiveness, like collegial competitiveness with people you're smarter with and uh, a little bit of playfulness. I think I certainly that comes through from Claude Shannon. Maybe we're not going to solve for the like natural monopoly type situation with your company, but mostly it's, what are you and Oz says this a lot, but what are you waking up in the middle of the night thinking about like some problem? I guess that goes back to the problem rich environment. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to recap so I can reassess my own life. I have one that that's a little it's a little different. It's a, it's a tangent to it, but it, it's it's actually more important for management and sort of the C-suite to listen to, you know, Bell Labs won a number of awards and a lot of acclaim that went to individuals where the labs could draft in the wake of those achievements. And, and so you might hear Claude Shannon, but then in the next sentence of the little recognition or, or, or you know, thing, you would see Bell Labs. And I, I wonder if there isn't a lesson there around like uh, promoting individual achievement that you know will benefit the organization, if only as a recruiting tool. 
right? So the question I would wonder is like, how much is is an institution, maybe a tech company or any kind of company like trying to Jones for a MacArthur Genius Grant for somebody that works there, right? Or, or, or is like how many Nobel applications are coming out of Google versus coming out of like Harvard, right? And, and I, I do wonder about that because maybe what happens is that the intensity of the need to deliver shareholder returns, like it might be last on your list to think about individual scientific achievement or elections to the National Academy. And maybe some of these things are just not allowed. Maybe you can only have a university affiliation. I'm not super familiar. But I think that one of the lessons of the labs is the labs benefited mightily from the from the individual successes of its people, even if those successes had nothing to do with the labs is bottom line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And and I also would agree that, 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 you know, what you're, if, if, if you are going to sort of choose your life path, I mean, I think that relationship between taking a job and, and, and if you look to bell labs for, you know, some kind of insight and who your managers or manager will be is crucial. You know, there was, immense respect for a lot of the managers you were working for and that mattered and i think at least in that environment um as as shannon you know having a kind of technical respect for their knowledge um and that worked both ways i think with the managers sort of allowing a certain freedom for the people working under them and also i think encouraging a certain amount of risk taking but maybe not an insane amount of risk taking um really benefited quite a bit, both in terms of employee satisfaction, but also the kinds of innovations that came out of there or the ideas. On the topic of doing great work, both of you have done great work. I have to, I have to say, I don't want to embarrass you, but these, both of these are fantastic books. And um, I, I do think like as pieces of work, they exemplify the kind of things that our, our audience are trying to, to do. So I was wondering if you guys could uh, share what led you uh, both to to writing these books, I believe, John. This is this is your first uh, book as well, right? As well as Jimmy. How, how what was the path to what made you decide to write about this, and uh, how did you get to the point where you wrote the definitive book? Can we say on Bell Labs? Hmm. Yeah, the, the path was was misery. No, the path was uh, <laughs> the path was well. I you know I'd grown up in New Jersey, and 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 I was interested in this, and I I, I was you know writing about science and technology, and I I sort of felt like that there was there was a great story to be told here, and I didn't really quite know how to do it, um, and and immersing myself in the archives, which which were very messy because they had been kind of not tended to for many years, um, was a quite an experience, and and. It was, you know, if I think back on that period of time in my life, which would have been like 20, 2008 to 2011, um, it was this kind of gradual momentum of getting more and more excited about this old organization that really I could see, I could find a kind of cast of characters and I could find these sort of world-changing ideas and innovations that came out of there. And I sort of bit by bit, the story kind of came together for me in a way that I think was very fortunate. But um, but when I say misery, it really did take a lot of perseverance. I mean, I was, I was um, pretty broke at the time. And I remember a kind of very accomplished journalist saying, you know, what are you working on? And I'd said, I'm doing this book on Bell Labs. He's like, well, nobody's going to buy that. And I said, well, I don't know. It seems important to me. And 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 if there's a lesson there, it was that it felt important. Mm-hmm. I felt that even if nobody bought it, and I thought people would buy it because I grew up in New Jersey. I just knew it was a kind of, it was a, a famous place that there, there probably were a few hundred or a few thousand people who would buy it, but it felt important to me. And I guess that was that kind of flame that that kept it alive, that you know, if if it was the only book I was going to write, and it hasn't been that way, but um, that that it 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 was um, it it was a you know I I I knew when I went to sleep at night that it was worth it was something worth doing, and I never really doubted that part of it. Amazing, uh, I Jimmy, I want to hear your answer too, but maybe you can weave this in as well. But I imagine during that long process, often in software engineering or side projects, you. Um, there's always the I'm midway through something and then I have another idea and it's mm-hmm. like, do I go chase this next thing or do I have to ship the first thing? So I over a multi-year book project, I imagine there's dozens of other ideas that come your way that you have to put in a box or maybe explore for a little bit. And I know 
that must be really acute with writing as well when you're embarking on such a long project. Yeah, I mean, I, there were there were times where I had to do magazine stories, just mm. you know, pay the bills, um, and and tried to keep it to a minimum. Um, and you know, contracts can be quite quite the the carrot and stick, saying you know you gotta deliver a yeah. manuscript at some point, or you know the way book contracts are stru structured, you're not going to get the back you know payment on the contract unless you actually do uh, deliver the manuscript. So in that sense, it was. Um, I, I knew I couldn't stray too far. And, mm. you know, books are such a huge endeavor that to sort of say, well, I'm going to put this book aside and do another book was just out of the question. It was, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure there are people who who do work that way, but I, I just, you know, it just wasn't, I was, I was in so deep that it was, it just seemed impossible to, to kind of go astray. Yeah. Yeah. My, my answer to this is, is in some ways much easier. And it is that a friend sent me John's book and with it came a little note and they said, this book is fantastic. You should really do a book on Claude Shannon. And that was it. Like, that was honestly it. And, and the, the, the interesting thing about even being on this call is like, John is just somebody I admire so much for the work he's done. Right. And like one of the thrill of doing books is you get to end up connecting with people like John. But I would say if there's a sort of lesson, I, it, it is, just to follow your curiosity, but that, that, it, it's a bit more specific than that, which is take it kind of a few levels further than um, what someone else might, right? So for me, it was, I read John's book, then I reread John's book. And I was like, you know, this Claude Shannon character, like this could be something. Then I read The Information by James Glick. And I was like, that's a great book, but it's not a biography. And it's hard for a lot of readers because it's not, you know, it's not a linear story. And, and you know, it's like, it's a beautiful book, but it's, it's, it's in some ways impenetrable for a certain category of reader. And it had nothing about Shannon's like years zero to 25, basically, right? It didn't have that much. And I was like, well, you know, a lot of stuff happens in people's childhoods. Like, I want to know what that's all about. And eventually it just kind of took shape. And I was working full-time while I was writing. I've, I've worked full-time while I'm writing all my books only because I just, it's side hustle for the way to, to de-risk the books, right? It's the only, I, it's not great for your sort of personal life. And like, it's not great for having any free time to do anything else. But I find that I can do these things on in the mornings very early and then on the weekends. And for me, the upside is like I'm getting to read and write and like research and interview. It's like, I can't believe somebody would pay me for that. You know, it's like kind of, whoa, like I can't believe I get to do it. For the folks who are in your audience, you know, you may have a job and it may not be the most satisfying thing, but you were drawn to computer engineering, let's say, or computer science for something, some reason. You can keep that flame alive and work on things on the side without you know violating the trust of your employer or or you know taking it and and that thing the thing that you nurture on the side can become something that like becomes very fulfilling and a very big part of your life i would just say that like like for me it's it, i'm a big believer in side hustles you know shannon's information theory was a side hustle all of my books have been side hustles i i think that they're sort of wonderful things and they kind of keep you engaged in a totally different way um I also, I would say that the the one thing that I also admire about John, the thing I try to do is I don't spend, I don't try to turn out a book a year, right? Like I'm in the middle of a book project right now, and I can already tell you, it's going to take three years to do. Like I know that it is. I just know that that's the amount of time it's going to take for me to do the interviews, to really wade through the research, to go like kind of intensely. And three is, I'm being optimistic. <laughs> like I'm already, you know, I'm already a year in, this could take longer. But I, I think that there's a temptation to want to quickly ship and I think there's something good about that. Like my version of shipping is I try to hit a word count every day, but I, I think there's something to think about like longer time horizons for projects that last, right? Now that might be specific to books, but I don't think that it is. Like, I think there's something to that. Oh yeah, there's such a, uh, so Jimmy knows this, but I'm also trying to, uh, been writing this children's novel for so many years and Jimmy's given me some advice, but I, in my distract, my failure mode is reading books about writing tactics. So mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, this is helping me feel more productive. And there's such a, you know, even if the rest is BS, the habit of sitting down every day and just doing the work and just butt in seat. Uh, and then you're surprised if I can get 500 words on average per day, you'll have a manuscript eventually, which is kind of an amazing thing. Now, uh, I think doing research, that's a whole can of worms that I, I know that that, you know, traveling and doing all that stuff um, is a whole other interesting challenge. It's just amazing what you've both been able to do. I'm I want to be respectful of your time. So uh, I just wanted to say thank you both for coming along, chatting with us. Uh, I'm 
I'm excited to read. I haven't read Ice at the End of the World, John, but it's uh, I'm going to buy it right after this. Oh, are you? Uh, no, I I am. Uh, you, I, I could screen share my Amazon purchase right after this, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, I'm excited about that. And Jimmy, I read the founders. Amazing work. Are you able to talk about the book that's in the coffers right now? Either of you, or is it still too early to let people know what's coming next? Um, no, I can I can talk and I mean, Jimmy can chime in yeah. after um, I, I'm working on a book about NASA's Voyager mission, which is the longest mission in the history of NASA. And it's um, I, I, I would maintain the greatest endeavor of exploration in human history. Um, and it's still going. And and so I, I do spend time going out to the Jet Propulsion Lab and sitting and talking with those guys and going through their archives and the like. And it's 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 a long haul. Um Voyager hits 50 its 50th anniversary god willing um in 2027 and uh there're two there're two ships and they're about 15 billion miles away and we we hope they'll make it to that but um this book will be the the story of that of that mission amazing well i have a short story i wrote last year called voyager 3 so ah. i will uh I'll, you can i'll send it to you you can ignore it it's not very good but uh <laughs> i i love that i i hope they make it through that orc cloud yes <laughs> yeah Sure. Jimmy, what's what are you working on? Yeah, on my end, um, still at the very early stages of it, but it's been exciting already, which is uh, there's a period in Steve Jobs' life that has been under-documented, which is his work creating the company Next Computer. The Next is the computer company that he builds from when he's fired at Apple to when he, Apple acquires Next, and that begins his return as CEO of Apple. And it's got, it's been a footnote in history, but it's a dozen years of his life, a dozen. And he only lives mm -hmm. to be, I think, in mid-50s. So a third of his adult life. And this is for the engineers who are listening. You can open up jo certain JavaScript pages today. And if you look for the words NS, like NS object, that is next step object. It came out of next. Mm -hmm. And I could go on down the line of the different innovations that grew out of next computer. The World Wide Web was invented on a next computer. Doom, Quake, like most of the video games that define my childhood <laughs> came out of Next, um, on and on. And I, I found it to be a, the most interesting group of people came together. And it is more than a Steve Jobs story. It's actually a story of this constellation of people over a dozen years who transitioned this hardware company into a software company. You get apparent guest appearances by Ross Perot and others. Um, and it's, uh, it's a story that's sort of been waiting to be told. So uh, that's what I'm working on. Amazing. If you uh, if you get a next cube on your hands, I don't know if you can see my little library. I let's talk. I uh, that's yeah. thing for my collection. So there's a I've I've now like seen a bunch of them in the background of Zoom calls I'm doing with yeah. people who work there, right? <laughs> who have held on, who have like, moved these next cubes across oceans and things. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then we went to the there's a, a an archive at Carnegie Mellon, and we I saw one there in the flesh. So that was it was pretty epic. Okay, cool. Love it. Thank you all so much. Hope we can chat again soon. Oh, thank you guys. Thank Thanks you guys. for having me. This is great. Yeah. Nice to see you, Jimmy. Take care. Bye. Good to okay. see you. Bye, guys.